Thanks for joining us for the Cultured Meat and Future Food Show. Global Table is a new agribusiness event taking place in Melbourne this September. Get your ticket at globaltable.com.au. I'll be moderating a panel with Dr. Kai-Yi Ling of Shiok Meats, among others. Cultured Abundance is an open source resource on the science of cell-based meat. It's designed to help scientists, entrepreneurs, investors, and future industry suppliers go from intermediate to expert. It contains analyses of cell-based meat patents, white papers, literature reviews, and many other resources. Check it out at www.culturedabundance.com. The Cultured Meat Symposium is taking place in San Francisco on November 14th and 15th. Learn more and register at www.cms19.com. Use the coupon code FUTUREFOODSHOW for a special discount. Thanks for joining us for the Cultured Meat and Future Food Show. We're excited to have Philip Sineski as the guest for today's episode. Philip Sineski is the VP of Product and Commander and Chef of Regrain, a mission-driven brand ingredient platform that connects urban craft breweries to sustainable food systems. Philip's culinary background in Michelin Star and James Beard Award finalist kitchens was succeeded by working with food entrepreneurs from concept to commercialization at a product and development consultancy. Here, he also led the launch of the Research Chefs Association Evolution of Food Waste Product Development Students Competition. His unique food background, involvement with nonprofit impact organizations, curiosity about ingredients historically considered as waste, and passion for formulating delicious products at scale make him a natural fit for regrain. As commander and chef, he oversees production, innovation, sourcing, culinary operations, food science, and every opportunity to do a collaboration dinner pop-up. We recorded this episode in San Francisco, California. It was really yeah. funny. The other day, there was like this food journalist and then Phil, and they're like talking to each other like, oh, did you go to this event? And like, this person was there and that person is there. And I'm like, oh shit, like, I don't know any of these people. <laughs> and the, the journalist what? looks at me, she's like, surely you know this person. And I'm like, oh no. <laughs> and she's like, oh, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there was a Larissa um, Zibinoff, I believe is her last name. But that's how I went to, like, I got invited to this Salesforce Sustainability Symposium. I mean, did you hear about that event? Yeah. Oh my God, the Star Chef power there. Like, so my background is, is I guess we'll get into is, is a chef and food yeah. scientist. But um, I mean, you know, Enrique Oliveira, uh, Kyle and Katina Kanaten, who I got a chance to reconnect with, I've met before, um, Massimo, you know, um, Luis, or uh, Anthony Luis from Marguerite's, like these three Michelin star restaurants in San Sebastian. So. Yeah, I'm actually going to be going to San Sebastian at the end of August, and Where is that? it's in Spain in Basque Country, oh. and it's like San Sebastian is like the culinary, like, like chef-driven leader, you know, of like because there's more like three Michelin star restaurants there than like any other like geographic like per square foot or something like that. Really, more than like Tokyo? <clears throat> Tokyo, I think, has more because geographically right. Tokyo is like gigantic, but it's such like a small town with like tons of. Michelin star, two Michelin star, and then three Michelin star restaurants. Wow. But consistently, there's like three or four in the top 15 like every year of wow. the San Pellegrino top Why do you three. think that it? I think it's just like really progressive um, cuisine. I think that um, they just do a lot of like testing beyond 
the kitchen that they'll like actually like, like the elbow lees and stuff that that movement has really kind of elbow lee was like the um like Farron adria and like like kind of what der- derived out of that was the whole molecular gastronomy for oh, lack wow. of a better term right you know <clears throat> cuisine and um it just inspired like a wave of chefs globally especially in like the high-end you know michelin star kitchens to right. just think about like oh what else we can do with food and incorporate you know some things that you'd see the food scientists do at scale but just how to make food like even more crispier by like you know using liquid nitrogen or right. freeze drying it or creating like powders and, and then right. yeah they're they're the whole i think the it's a little healthier too like that classic french culinary technique where you just drown something in butter and, and heavily season it with salt and really really fatty stuff like it's little it's 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 leaner it's it's more nose to tail it's more root to stem and it's um it's more uh it, it tends to be a little healthier mediterranean diet oh, but with like with like a lot of flavors that like the western palate isn't really quite used to but is like nevertheless like really really delicious so there was a one restaurant or one chef that had a restaurant in chicago it ended up closing down but just or hampton creek they ended up like moto what is it moto yeah yeah, yeah. exactly who was yeah. that chef homari kantu right yeah yeah exactly i mean that that idea okay yeah 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 it closed down um Sadly, he passed away. Right. Like as well. Um, but um, what's his name? Chris from Just. Chris. He's like their R and D chef. Okay. Um, Chris Jones, I think his name is. He came from there. Yeah. <clears throat> he came from there, okay. and I, I believe he's like the director of R and D or something really high. I saw him speak at like a, a research chef conference like right. long time ago, and then um, I think there was like Richie was the other sous chef there. Okay. And like they were both on Top Chef one season. They were both then, from that <coughs> Chicago restaurant. And they were both from Moto. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Are they still at Just? Do you think? I think Chris Jones is still at Just. Okay. Yeah. I don't know what Richie's doing, but um, but yeah, I mean, it's restaurants like that that. You know, really pioneer what we're what we're going to be eating in the future, how it's going to be produced, and then inspire how it's going to be done at scale. Right. In my opinion. Okay. You know, so. Cool. Well, we'll dive into that <laughs> a little bit deeper. Phil, I'm excited to welcome you to the Cultured Meat and Future Food Show. Thanks for having me, Alex. Tell us a little bit about your background. What did you study, and when did you realize you were interested in food, or should I say, food science? Um, so my background is as a chef uh, here in San Francisco. Um, I started out working uh, actually in a restaurant in the peninsula called the Village Pub, and it was like really classic French cuisine, all sourced, uh, all produce sourced from one farm, so it was highly seasonal, the menu changed a lot, and like as a young chef, you'd really get a chance to explore like different avenues for <clears throat> for how to use food in different ways and different techniques, so that was a really good file cabinet for me to kind of build my library of, of flavor profiles and techniques to start. Um, and I started out as a savory cook there, and then um, <clears throat> the executive chef sat down with me one day and said, hey, Phil, like, you can either stay here for you know, a long, long time, and, and <clears throat> I can train you to be <clears throat> the, the sous chef, um, and then the executive sous, and, and you're, you know, really, you know, I can mentor you there. Um, or you know, what he recommended was that I go um, into different kitchens that I had never been into, um, work in different cities, uh, and work with all different types of cooks and really kind of expand my network and expand my skill set from there. So that's what I did. And then um, a few months later, I got a call from the then executive pastry chef for the restaurant group of the Village Pub, the Bacchus Management Group. Um, And she said, hey, Phil, there's going to be a new restaurant opening up um, on 7th and Mission. 
Uh, it's going to be highly seasonal. I know that's right up your alley. Um, it's going to be really similar to Denny Meyer's Gramercy Tavern in, in New York City. And um, I'd love to have you as part of my pastry team. And I'm I'll... smiling because I'm so disconnected from <laughs> these restaurant groups and these chefs. So That's what I'm here for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I love it. Yeah, I love yeah, it. So, yeah. Um, um, and, and so, um, so yeah, it was a big risk that they took on me because I had no pastry experience. I mean, I had a little bit of pastry experience, but I was like a savory cook, you know, from the line. And like when you're a savory cook, you're really using your senses. You're smelling, you're tasting, you're adjusting, you're feeling. You're definitely, you know, seeing the the the, the temperatures change and, and how to control them over time. That to me, that's what savory cooking <clears throat> line is. It's confidence controlling temperatures. When you get into pastry, it's it's much different. It's much more like a product developer. You know, you're you're talking about pushing volumes. You're talking about creativity. You're you're having like a, a, a more serious prep list where your bigger tasks are are front loaded in the day. Um, and it isn't really like as much cooking to order. Um, so I, so I, 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 uh, I got my hands wet in that kitchen and I just fell in love from there. It was uh, very modern. It was vegetable based desserts. It was, you know, 12 to 15 course tasting menu. Um, it was highly seasonal in that like we, <clears throat> was this? this was called AQ. Okay. Yeah. In the Bay Area. Yeah. Just down the road. Okay. Seventh admission. Um, and it, uh, our, our premise was we changed everything the first day of the season, like our whole menu, our the color of the apron that we wore, um, the, the the whole interior design of the restaurant, wow. and really just wanted to create like a sense of place and time there. Um, changing menus every season was pretty hectic because it's like, you know, oh God, I gotta have like three or four more desserts and right. you know like a, <clears throat> a a really lavish cheese plate and a, a seasonal intermezzo, <laughs> you know, it's just kind of cheese intermezzo leading into like a dessert. And, but that's really where <clears throat> I, I got inspired by, by savory dessert and vegetable-based cuisine, how, and how that can extend to all parts of the tasting menu. Um, and uh, from there, uh, I was really starting to burn out. You know, uh, working in a restaurant, you're working 11 to 18 hours a day. Um, and I loved it. You know, uh, I, I just couldn't see myself doing that, um, you know, five years from then. And so uh, I um, moved down to the Central Coast and... Um, uh, became the sous chef and then later transitioned into being the pastry chef for this French bistro and hotel right by Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And then simultaneously, uh, I was studying culinology, which is the intersection between culinary arts and uh, the science of food and blended with technology. And it was an approved program down there and it was, it was a research chef association approved program, RCA approved program, which I can get into later. Um, and then while I was there, uh, uh, you know, was, was studying food science. I was also working in a kitchen. And then later on, after um, working at Granada Bistro, uh, helped open up a bakery. And then, um, that, then that was in Santa Barbara. <clears throat> and then after opening up the bakery, uh, I came back up here to work for a food product development um, consultancy in Burlingame called A La Carte Connections. And I uh, was mentored by Rachel Zemzer. And so like a lot of my... Um, my bench top, it was mostly food science, it was also food scientists there, and they were like, we need someone who can develop, uh, you know, a lot of baked good clients and, and have, um, like, who has experience doing, you know, gluten-free and who has experience with alternative grains and alternative plant proteins incorporated with, with today's modern consumer who wants it to be highly transparent and, and clean label and, um, and, and getting all the supply chain right and scaling up into a co-packer. <clears throat> so that was that was really cool, 
it was a lot of fun. Um, I think the food product consultancy work is a really great way for young food scientists and um, emerging chefs and colonologists to really get their hands um, on many different types of material because you're not just learning one thing, you're, you're really learning a wide range of, of application for, for ingredients. And you get to experiment with like all different types of ingredients and build relationships with suppliers. And then after, or like while, while I was there, I got more and more involved with the Research Chef Association um, and started presenting you know, to their board. I, <clears throat> I built a, a student committee and then in building the student committee, um, got really inspired by other board of directors there and who, who really continue to mentor me to this day. And um, things really changed when uh, I created uh, the world's first product, stu food waste student product develop or food waste product development student competition. Uh, it's called the Evolution of Food Waste. You product created the competition. Yeah, so I created the competition, <clears throat> and it was really just a way to get students to go to conference, so that they could see, hey, like you know, there's more opportunities than you realize, and 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 get students to directly <clears throat> connect with professionals, like walking up to the RCA conference. It, it takes place at the annual Research Chef Association conference every year. Um, and we just really need to get more students involved because like those students were just gonna be change makers and, and, and taste leaders um, once they're becoming professionals. And so in creating this competition, I had sort of indirectly created a network <clears throat> for myself, um, which was great. Uh, it was a little overwhelming <laughs> at first, but in creating it, I started to interview with, with other companies and, um, and uh, there were, there were, I had done so much research around this idea that like, waste means business and waste can be taste at like every scale that some of these companies were not only wanting to get involved with um, the RCA competition, but also <clears throat> wanting to have, I think the idea that someone wanted to, you know, have me be part of their company to come in and carve out their role and they weren't afraid to, to, to let me, you know, have some autonomy in that way. Um, and in, in, in researching all the successful companies and, and all the really cool, unique upcycle ingredients that were out there, um, it was pretty clear to me that uh, Regrain was, was the best opportunity for me and, and, and we were gonna continue to have like a, a really, really big impact on um, creating sustainable food systems. Cool, so we'll, we'll talk about Regrain in a second. Yeah. To step back a little bit, you were talking about these different um, restaurants, kitchens, Tell us a little bit about the layout of a, a high-end kitchen. Sure, sure. So um, typically in a high-end kitchen, everyone starts in the Garmage station. Um, it's a hard, Garmage stations, especially in California, are like huge now um, because there's so many dots and so many sauces that you have to prep and everything is like highly seasonal, so it changes a lot and it really can, you know, test your, your ability to, to, to onboard a new dish and how to create it and how to perfect it like within hours before service. <laughs> and so everyone kind of starts on that station just to get your timing right and then you move up to like hot appetizers um, and then from hot appetizers you move up to like working the meat station, which is my favorite station. <laughs> like okay. actually I'm really, I'm really more of a meat cook than a fish cook or a saute cook, okay. you know, because it's more about like feeling and temperatures and, and, and the, the, the confidence controlling temperatures and then um, you move up from there to uh, saute, which is, you know, the pasta, the fish, um, things that have like a really uh, short pick and, and a, um, a really short lead time in getting to the pass. 
And then um, the other side of the kitchen is pastry. Um, sometimes it's in the same kitchen. Sometimes it's you know downstairs. If it's in New York, it's definitely downstairs because <laughs> of how the New York architecture is structured. Um, and uh, and and their their pastry usually does, is like a whole separate. Um, department and in fine dining kitchens you usually have a pastry chef but when you're at like um, a hotel in French Bistro like where I was it really helps to have a sous chef that can just do a, some pastry but not necessarily have you know your your bill of material per se and in your your annual payroll to have like a full-time pastry chef um, unless you're doing like events and weddings and stuff like that which which I guess we were doing but it, it also worked out that I could work the line <laughs> as well too so um, so yeah, that's kind of how it's structured. Um, there's c two different ways where fine dining restaurants can be structured. There's like, you know, cooking to order and then there's like tasting menu and cooking to order is just calling it out and the chef is expediting and overseeing every dish as it goes out. And, and then the tasting menu style <clears throat> of a kitchen is um, these stations are getting ready to plate their dishes and put them on the pass to send out to diners. And then the next few dishes, like you're like, you know, 10 minutes out, you should be ready to play. Like 15 minutes out, you should be ready to cook this. Like, and then it, it's really a, a, just a waterfalling domino effect of how the dishes get sent out from there. Right, probably yeah. perfectly timed, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow, cool, okay. Um, so when did you first meet the co-founders at Regrind and uh, how was the process of getting involved with them? Oh, I love this question. It's just a fun story to tell. So um, in creating the, um, the RCA Food Waste Competition, I was part of um, Open IDEO's Food Waste Alliance. Um, Open IDEO is part of IDEO, um, this ad agency, and Open IDEO is like their special projects platform where they have um, big questions that seem almost impossible to solve but work towards chipping away, chipping away and building a digital community to just create these conversations and, and cultivate relationships from there. Um, so um, one day on a call, um, I was talking about my food waste competition um, uh, on this open ideal call and then uh, Dan from Regrain, our, our Regrain leader and our Regrain CEO and co-founder, um, he direct messaged me and was like, hey Phil, like, this is Dan from Regrain, we should talk. And I was like, yeah. Like, Have you heard about Regrain before that time? Oh yeah, I and and that was the thing is like I had done like all my I thought I knew all about Regrain, um, because I had done my research on on you know ingredients to explore that students could formulate that were historically considered waste and and how to channel that into this innovation platform, um, but I at the time Regrain was um, you know the only product they had um, recently launched on the market was a bar. And I had worked on a lot of our projects, you know, being here in the Bay Area. Um, and I was like, oh, this is, this is a, a really cool idea. And I had tasted the bar and I was like, it, it, it tastes pretty good. It tastes pretty good, enough to build a brand around. But I wasn't like craving it, like per se. And how many people were on their team at that time? At the time, there was um, two, just two people okay. at the time. And yeah, they were creating the products themselves. Yeah, Did they so our, have a food background? Our other, our other uh, Regrain co-founder, Jordan Schwartz, um, he has a little bit of a food background. Like he was a buyer um, and he had controlled uh, more of like the, the back-end operations. And that's really more his background is operations. Um, but like they realized that um, without having a formal food product developer on, on staff, your product can really only go so far. Um, and so that's kind of where I came in. And, um, and I, I met Dan on a Tuesday, I met Jordan on a call uh, the next day, and then two days later, <laughs> told him we were gonna take over the world. So <laughs> yeah, that's, that's how it started, and that was December 
15th, 2016, and I started uh, January 2nd, 2017, and I mean, it has just been really, like, everything that we could have hoped for and then some ever since then. It's been um, all, the, all the relationships I've had with um, my mentors in the Research Chef Association um, are continuing to watch me grow. Um, the momentum then versus the momentum and, and, and it's not just like a, a, a micro trend, it's a macro one now is, is how do we, you know, create a business and close the nutrient loop and, you know, regenerate ingredients to create circular food economies. And, um, and, and, and also for, for, for us on the regrain side, we've got our ingredient, our regrain supergrain plus flour, a lot more standardized and we're really exploring innovation partners and um, have three bar SKUs on, on the market that we have fully co-packed um, and are, are hungry for more new product launches. I think I was chatting with you about the time you guys were prior to going to a co-packer. Yeah. And you told me this insane story, how you guys were doing like thousands of bars manually. Tell me about that. Yeah. What were you doing? Where were you doing it? How many? What was the volume? Yeah, yeah. Uh, happy to answer in, in more detail. So we work um, out of a commercial kitchen in San Mateo called Kitchen Town. And um, thankfully, because Kitchen Town has the resources we need and as well as other food businesses to, to scale up, um, we, uh, we, we made a lot, a lot of regrain bars there. Um, the first year uh, in 2017, um, we made number numbers wise annually. I can't remember off the top of my head, but we made around 3,000 a day. And then in 2018, we started to push, you know, anywhere between five to six thousand a day per day per day per wow. shift. Really, it wasn't even the full day. It took like five or six hours. Wow. Um, you know, my many, like the whole team was working on it? It was me overseeing it, and we okay. had like a production crew. Oh, you did? Um, okay. For a long time, it was only two of us, um, and then we added a few more, and, <laughs> and, then, and then we could do a, a, a little bit bigger of a volume. And then when your product is, you know, completely handmade, um, it is also hand-packaged. It's also hand-fulfilled. <laughs> right. It's also hand-distributed. Um, so, yeah, there, there was a lot of bootstrapping that, that went into that. But it also allowed us to continue to grow our brand, to continue to let our co-founders be co-founders and not have to worry about things like production, supply chain sourcing for our own grain that we were dehydrating, and then, um, uh, and then how, how we were going to be packaging it, you know, like right after production to make sure that it was it, the, it, the, the packaging sealed in the product shelf life stability like over time. So yeah, it was, it was definitely... Um, a, a big chunk out of my week and um you know as of earlier this year we finally have our bars fully co-packed and we it took us a little longer to get into a co-packer because we didn't want to scale up and i have I've, I've seen this with other startups as they scale up at volume and, and scale um we didn't want to uh scale up without like w with compromising the product like we wanted it to be to look and taste and texturally be like exactly the same as what the handmade product was. So we had to do a few different um, co-packer trial runs to optimize that. And that's perfectly normal. So it takes a little bit longer than most uh, food startups realize to get into, you know, manufacturing capability. So I was talking to someone and they were telling me that the process of, of kind of getting the product out the first time until to where it's, 
really doing well, it takes like 20 different iterations. Yeah. Did you guys see the same? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe 20 is kind of 20 low. 20 is, is, is a much lower. Okay. One. Yeah. Um, we, uh, we, we, yeah. So, so while the, the first year, you know, we had our, 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 our two bars on the market and it was a different formula in 2018 when we rebranded and relaunched and then we added a new skew, a new flavor. Um, so in October, 2017 i was doing quite a bit of r&d um after production <laughs> like late late nights at at kitchen town to to see how we could have our bars not be baked anymore so how they could be kettle cooked because that's how they were going to be processed at the co-packer it's a little cheaper it's a lot more consistent um you know the price of electricity is really expensive the labor costs the, the cooling costs of just the bars coming out of the oven and sitting out and you can't really like blow a fan on it because you're just you know, introducing, um, you know, other potential uh, non-food grade material like into it. So, yeah, that, that was that was one thing that we optimized on. And uh, we, I went through lots and lots of small scale iterations, uh, much, much smaller than the, the MOQs that we have our co-packer. But it made it so that when I make adjustments or then when I would go to the co-packer, um, I knew how to make adjustments and I knew our product like in and out. And then, um, you know, because my background is, you know, like as, as like a line cook, I was always kind of channeling my inner line cook and that inner R&D chef in me. So I, I, it was me that was probably pushing to do more iterations and me being the pickiest one probably on the team. So if it went past my palate, then we could scale up. And I think I was, uh, we were all a little stubborn about it, but I was probably the one that could point out, you know, discrepancies and where we needed to troubleshoot things to make it fully delicious. We're talking about upcycling. Is that the right term? Yes. Yeah. So what is upcycling and maybe what are some common foods that we may know that are upcycled? Sure. Foods sure. And, and why it's important. Yeah. So um, upcycling is uh, specifically something better than recycling up the EPA food hierarchy. Um, we're taking something and bringing a new life to it better than its past life. Like we're not just taking aluminum cans and making more aluminum cans, that's great, but we're regenerating it into something with a higher purpose to feed hungry people. So in our case, you know, this ingredient that's historically been considered spent by the brewers um, is far from spent from a nutritional and functional ingredient application. Um, we, we take this grain, then we harvest it and we process it into a flour and it's this, it's about the same protein as a chickpea or an almond, and um, it's virtually no sugars, and it's got a lot of arabinoxalins and antioxidants because it's been fermented a, like a little bit once and has a lot of prebiotic fiber. So in short, we take this high-protein, high-impact prebiotic flour and then hypothetically apply it to as many products and innovation partners as we can. And so that's one way of upcycling, and the gold standard of uh, the ingredient that is upcycling is whey protein the byproduct from the dairy and cheese making industry 40 years ago and now whey protein because of the dehydration technology and the technological advancements in the food industry, really good example of tech coming into food. It's such a value add ingredient. I mean, you could put it on popcorn and not only charge more, but it's actually healthier popcorn. It's gonna fill you up. It's gonna prevent you from maybe eating, you know, other highly processed foods. Um, baby carrots, Bullhouse Farms, you know, like those are ugly carrots. <laughs> they, they get channeled into, into um, carrots uh, that you can eat and are more snackable. Um, probably one of my favorite examples is tater tots. Uh, tater tots started out as the potato peels 
and like basically just grinding them up almost through so, sort of like a meat grinder and then um, piping it out and frying them and over time they're like well we should actually use like real potatoes because we can make a lot of tater tots and then sell them in a food service application oh wow okay. and 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 yeah that's that's the story of how tater tots started is it was it was um you know how to how to funnel something that was historically considered wasteful into something that can be fried delicious <laughs> so they are pretty good they're 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 pretty craveable too they're and, very I, craveable. and i think that's the key thing about upcycling foods is you've got to make it craveable it's you've got to make it taste good or else you're not gonna have as much of an impact as much of appeal is craveability like an official metric it's a hard one to metric to to to, to have a rubric around right. um but it's one that's like us as humans from a sensory perspective know it immediately right. like oh my god like i want this again and yeah purchasing decisions and repeat purchases uh that can be a good metric for hey i crave this product right what are and so your team is focusing on snack foods bars what are some opportunities for new products in the upcycling space yeah i mean you know we lead we hypothetically could be in every aisle of the grocery store. And if you can name it, we've probably regrained it like internally. Um, so uh, we're launching a new, like a, like a puff ridge chip um, in like a month and a half. Or the one that I tried the other night? Yes. That was very, very tasty. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. has some craveability factor. Thank you. And Thank you. that's the thing when you're sampling food, it's like, oh, I can't just like go and buy it yeah. again, right? So, but you said it's going to be out in a month and a half? Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. We, we just put in some big POs for that, and we're, we're really excited about that. Um, it's another snack product. It's a category that's, um, you know, exploding. It's a category that um, is really ripe for healthy innovation. Um, and, uh, you know, you're seeing a lot of the success with, like, you know, hippies and, and other extruded products. So it's kind of like this Puff Ridge chip, and we've got some really cool flavors um, that are very San Francisco. You know, we've got like a Mexican street corn, we've got like a urban garden, which is kind of like our vegetables based chip that has like caramelized onion and roasted garlic in it and kind of mimicking that like San Francisco rooftop garden, as well as like some of the other classic flavors that you would typically see in, in that category. Um, we're doing a, um, launching a, a pasta with the pasta shop as well as oh, you are yeah wow. so okay, they're, cool. they're based in oakland and then um that's actually probably going to come on the market even sooner so it will be available in good eggs it will be available at the market on market um and uh i'm, I'm looking to showcase the ingredient versatility by doing a couple pop-ups um, with it and having some other chefs explore what they want to do with that ingredient um it's a great application for a pro pasta our, our our high fiber you know prebiotic flour um, the super green plus flour is also really good in um, using it as a thickener for for a roux, like as a gumbo or for like uh, like a gravy base. Um, it's it, the the obvious application is doughs, you know. So like using it in a biscuit, using it. It's I, I've done pizza pop ups for like high school senior boys and their moms. Um, I've I've you know used it as a binder for a vegan meatball. It makes really good like pie crusts and. Um, and, and like like quiche, quiche shells and tart shell, like patsy shells. Um, I mean, yeah, doughs is the most obvious one, but it, you know, we, we don't just think about, or, or in, in addition to think about what could we do with it, that's such a wide range, it's what should we do with it and who can help us get to the next level of, of you know, having these products available at scale and then who can 
who, who can we kind of collaborate locally to showcase that our ingredient is highly versatile and, and, and equally functional and, and super delicious. It's kind of got this graham crackery toasted almond like aroma, which is good because it's a, it's a flour that you can use a lot of, and then it's also a flour that you can add a lot of flavor to like traditional recipes like biscuits and stuff like that. So with every example, I'm getting more and more hungry now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here for you. <laughs> So as someone who is in the industry, uh, because of recent successes, for example, the most recent Beyond Meat, um, going to the market, uh, RX Bar is an example yeah. I use uh, quite a bit. There's a lot of cross-industry interest. So as someone who's from or who's in the industry, have you seen kind of like a bump in interest in food tech, food products, and food entrepreneurships over the years? Yeah, definitely. And I think the barrier to enter the market is much lower than it has ever been. And food is so much more democratic. And it's made the overall quality of food just better and a lot more transparent. So we're seeing like a lot of investors um, coming in from the tech space, uh, especially here in the Silicon Valley. And I think that like the, the some, some of the idea of tech coming into food is the idea that like, what kind of problem are you solving in the world? And this is like, you know, as you know, Alex, this is like a really basic, like, you know, human centered design principle is like empathizing with the consumer and what kind of problem are you solving? Well, food has a lot of problems, you know, like we're a growing population. We are continually stripping our resources, you know, to, to some extent we're overusing them in certain industries, you know, like cattle production and, and creating methane just from even spent grain, like going to farms creates more methane. Um, and yeah, I mean, like you mentioned Ethan, Ethan Brown or Beyond Meat and Ethan, Ethan Brown always quotes that like um, cattle production is like way worse than like just driving your car around, you know, right. for, for, for the environment. So we're seeing a lot of uh, the, the, the oppor where there's problems, there's tons of opportunity and that like the, the, the engineer, the designer, the, the tech focused, you know, entrepreneur sees that as something that is like an opportunity and there's um, a lot of venues to kind of cultivate these conversations for how to, um, you know, make food beyond food, like food beyond food, food that's impactful and investing in impact and investing in platforms and, and investing in services for these companies to um, be better. And in, even, even investing in resources to help the entrepreneur because the food entrepreneur may not come from a food background. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a, it's an industry that's a lot more collaborative now. And you're seeing that with, with RX bar, you know, with their, their, uh, partnership with, uh, Kellogg, um, you're, you're seeing that the, the Is it partnership or acquisition? Acquisition. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I, I guess, I guess a little bit of both, you yeah. know, technically. Yeah. So you're, you're seeing that, um, the, the, I think that's all being represented, um, in this collaboration between large food and small food and emerging brands and how they can benefit from knowing what manufacturing capabilities can look like at scale. So you have a better end goal of how to, you know, make your cogs look good and how you, you keep your product, you know, um, uncompromised like over time and still tasting delicious as well as like for these big companies to some extent through like, you know, their corporate strategic funding or through like a, a venture like Kellogg's 1894, um, Barilla's like 1877, um, Tyson Ventures has like a separate, you know, arm as well. But pr pr practically every big company has an arm that's created to uh, dedicate how they can look at startup innovation and over time maybe create a market category they wouldn't be able to create otherwise. How do you find 
news events what are the resources that you use to stay current yeah so it's um it's a lot of word of mouth and um personal and professional connections um linkedin is a great resource but some of my favorite newsletters to follow is i love food tech connect um and it's monday and thursday that they release their newsletter so that's like enough for me to check like all the different articles that are being posted as well as what's new and what's trending in the industry as opposed to like a food dive not to bash them or anything but they, they come out with something every day and like sometimes i just don't have time to read it in the morning while i drink coffee um and then food business news uh, uh is is uh the Sawson publishing team does a really great job of um highlighting what's trending and they're they're really great especially at like going to trade shows that you know i don't go to and and showcasing um, some of the new ingredients, some of the new brands, um, and, and overall, what are some of the ideas that come out of that? So um, I try to go to as many food conferences as I can. Um, you know, our, our mutual friend, Adam, Yee and I, we always talk about the fear of missing out of these food conferences and these food events and food opportunities. Um, so um, I try never to miss out, but if I, if, if I don't have the chance to, um, you know, I'm, I'm connected to people who um, have eyes there and who um, thankfully I can just read after them. So those are the two ones. And then in the, in the culinary and the chef world, uh, Eater is eater.com in every city that it's in. That's really the, the best way to stay current with what's going on from a restaurant innovative perspective, new openings and stuff like that. So. Cool. Now we got connected through Adam Yee of the My Food Job Rocks podcast. Big fan. You were at, yeah, uh, plug for Adam. <laughs> you were at St. Louis Obispo. Is that where you met Adam? It wasn't, no. Oh, okay. um, I, I, I never met Adam um, in San Luis Obispo. Um, we were uh, we were there around the same time, but we just were, I mean, I was working in a restaurant yeah. and like, I mean, we were, <laughs> like, I was always busy and I was doing the whole RCA thing. And um, he was really big into the IFTSA product development competitions, right. and he dominated, you know, a couple of years. So major props to him. And then, He's very well known. At oh, IFT. yeah. I went to IFT with him this year, and, like, every corner we would turn, oh, yeah. somebody would be like, Adam! Yeah. He's, yeah, it was awesome. Oh, yeah, Adam is, Adam is a celebrity, like, in general. You know, he's one of the faces of food science yeah. right now. Oh, yeah. And, 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 and just exploring how other people um, can you know, showcase their jobs through primary resources and interviews is, is what he's really brought to the market. So major props for him innovating in that regard. What, what IFT is to Adam is what the RCA is to me. Ah, okay. <laughs> so, so yeah. RCA then. Okay, cool. Yeah, cool. For, for me. And, th and that just speaks to our backgrounds, him being like a more technical, you know, uh, classically trained food scientist and me being like a more classically trained chef. But we both have this passion for combining both worlds. So oftentimes we, we, cross in between bolts because our both of our jobs demand that and um that's a beautiful thing and i think we just share the same goal of creating um more conversations that the world needs both the world needs the chef who can understand how to make food more delicious through science and the food scientists who maybe need to get their ass in the kitchen a little bit i have a bonus question for you yeah what is your favorite ingredient my favorite ingredient is sweet potatoes Sweet potatoes? Yeah, I know it's like not even close. I, sh I guess I should be saying something around spent beer grain or something. But um, yeah, sweet potatoes, uh, that was how I started cooking. Um, okay. I, uh, I, uh, I ran track and um, I started to notice uh, when, um, I, when I would eat healthier and when I started to cook my own food, um, I, would, I would be you know, leaner and I would be faster and I would just be a better attentive in class, you know, because I ran in college. 
Um, so sweet potatoes, I used to cut them like the size of my pinky fingernail. And then, you know, if you think about it like a French fry, that has more surface area for being crispy. Ah, okay. And like that is such a craveable sensory aspect to the human mind, sensory and, and, and crispiness and the, 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 the craveability of it. Um, so I started uh, roasting a bunch of sweet potatoes and had all different, you know, spices incorporated in them. And then now like sweet potatoes as an ingredient are, you know, if people haven't heard about them yet, that you're definitely gonna be hearing a lot more about sweet potatoes because the company in Carolina, um, Carolina ingredients, they take ugly sweet potatoes and they juice them into like a high fiber sweetener and it's zero added sugars, all carbohydrates, a natural binder. I mean, like there's a lot of innovation happening in, um, you know, pressing sweet potatoes as well as just eating them like at home because they're healthy, they're high fiber, slowly processed carbohydrate. So that, that was, that was one of my ingredients that inspired me to cook, I guess. That's why it's one of my favorite, the favorite. You can learn more about Philip Sineski on LinkedIn and Regrained at www.regrained.com. Phil, are there any last insights you might have for our listeners today? A couple, couple things is, you know, the idea that you want to have an agricultural impact. Um, and there's, we mentioned there's a lot of tech money being invested in agricultural technology. Mm -hmm. um, with upcycled ingredients, you, your farm starts at the brewery, it starts at the processing plant, and... That's where the circular food economy can be created. Um, so upcycle ingredient innovation can have a huge impact on regenerative agriculture and not even having to use the farm at all because you're taking ingredients that are abundantly inherent. And I guess I'm talking about waste byproducts that occur specifically through processing. Um, and you're, you're taking these ingredients that already exist in our supply chain and then just regenerating them in a closed nutrient loop um, without ever having to touch the land and maybe there's like some environmental costs associated with it and there's definitely like upfront infrastructure cost um, but over time if you can get through those first you know stages like you're looking at the long-term trajectory of of the impact that upcycled ingredient innovation can have on you know byproducts that are just simply ingredients they're not the end of a supply chain they're really the beginning of a food revolution so waste means business in that way this is really the future of food philip thank you so much Thanks, Alex, for having me.